Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, a pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Tamara Hajat, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. And my name is Jason Silverman, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Stullery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta. Today, we have the great pleasure of being joined by Dr. Aliyah Uch. Dr. Uch is a pediatric gastroenterologist and tenure professor at the University of Iowa with expertise in acute, acute recurrent and chronic pancreatitis and cystic fibrosis-related pancreatic diseases. She co-founded INSPIRE, which stands for International Study Group of Pediatric Pancreatitis in Search for a Cure. This is the first multi-center, multidisciplinary collaboration to examine pancreatitis in children. Dr. Uch also translates her clinical observations to the bench and studies the mechanism of pancreatic damage in cystic fibrosis. Her goal is to improve the lives of children with pancreatic diseases through better understanding the epidemiology, etiology, natural history, and focuses on developing better diagnostic approaches and therapeutics. Today, we're going to take this opportunity to talk to Dr. Uch about the management of acute and acute recurrent pancreatitis and talk to her more about how she developed the Inspire Network. We're really looking forward to this conversation. On to the show. Welcome, Dr. Uch. We really appreciate you coming on to Bell Sounds today. Thank you. It's been amazing to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, we're going to start with what some people find to be a challenging question, but it's really just to get to to know you a little bit better for people that don't know you in our in our audience. Um, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Um, I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist, and my goal is to improve the lives of children with GI problems. That is such an amazing goal, Dr. Uch. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how your interest in pancreatology started? Uh, my interest in pancreatology started uh, as a University of Iowa faculty uh, when I began to work uh, on the cystic fibrosis pig model, trying to understand the, the, the mechanism behind uh, the extensive pancreatic uh, disease in the model. That's a unique way to kind of find your, your path into, uh, into a clinical passion. Um, one thing that we've been doing lately in the setting of, of the pandemic when, when people's lives are so different is we've been asking our guests just sort of a fun question about things that they are doing to entertain themselves during the pandemic. So if there are any books or podcasts or movies or TV shows that, that have um, helped entertain you in the last little while that you may want to share with our listeners that, that they may want to check out? Um, so people may not know that I'm Turkish, but, you know, I watch a lot of, they call it Turkish disease. Uh, so Turkish series, actually, they're promoted across the world. So I, you know, I'm kind of addicted to some of them. <laughs> Yeah, I remember I watched a lot of them kind of when I uh, lived back in Jordan. And even here, I watch a lot of Turkish uh, series, which are great, very entertaining. Yeah, that, that's something that if I find time, I watch. You know, if I want to escape for 30 minutes, uh, exercise is one, yoga, meditation, all sorts of things, dance. Um, but if I want to escape, that's what I do. Any 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 kind of genre of uh, Turkish series. 
you know, you, you talked a little bit about um, some of your research interests in pancreatic disease. Um, maybe uh, we can talk a little bit more about uh, just pancreatitis in general. And, and I just want to ask you to talk a little bit about the diagnosis of acute pancreatitis in children. Um, so many of us you know, we'll get a consult for children with abdominal pain and lipase levels that aren't quite up to, uh, you know, the standard of three times the upper limit of normal, or the lipase level is elevated without typical symptoms or imaging findings. So how do you approach these situations? And maybe we can start with the INSPIRE criteria. <laughs> uh, thank you for the question. Sure. Um, I mean, as you know, as per the INSPIRE criteria, uh, the diagnosis of acute pancreatitis requires at least two out of three. So uh, abdominal pain, uh, typical of acute pancreatitis, MLAs and or lipase elevations, at least three times the upper limit of normal and imaging findings that confirm acute pancreatitis. So if children don't meet this criteria, I think one thing I would consider uh, whether uh, they had acute pancreatitis pancreatitis and they're recovering from their acute pancreatitis. That's why it's not elevated. Um, the other causes uh, of mild elevation of MLAs and or lipase could happen if children had some gut inflammation um, uh, or they have kidney failure. Uh, if only amylase is elevated, um, a fractionated amylase could help, and that's widely available. Uh, that would tell you if uh, the origin of the amylase is salivary versus pancreatic. Um, salivary amylase may increase if a patient has um, salivary gland disease or if patient has uh, recurrent vomiting. Uh, in an otherwise well patient, you can consider uh, benign uh, macroemylazemia or macroliposemia. Mayo has a test for macroemylazemia. Um, macroliposemia, no commercial test is available. A follow-up question on that. So occasionally as GI providers, we get consulted on patients who have elevated lipase, but no abdominal pain, no imaging findings of pancreatitis. So the patient does not meet criteria for acute pancreatitis, just an elevated lipase. Um, how would you approach that patient in that situation? And would you do any further workup uh, for that patient? Uh, very good question. I, I, one thing I would just say, you know, if there was no abdominal pain, why was the level of lipase checked? Um, but, you know, I would consider evaluation for inflammatory disease of the GI tract, uh, such as celiac disease. Um, and there are, you know, standard blood tests and the stool tests for that. If everything is negative, you can follow the serum lipase level in a month or two. If the lipase is still elevated and the patient has no other symptoms, then uh, a presumptive diagnosis of macroliposemia can be made. And you can reach this conclusion if you're satisfied with your clinical diagnosis and the imaging studies and that you ensure that there's no pancreatic mass, benign or malignant. Uh, sometimes that can require an endoscopic ultrasound to make sure that you haven't missed <laughs> a benign or malignant mass. Uh, but if the lipase returns to normal, I wouldn't pursue it. If the lipase remains elevated or the patient comes back with another elevation of lipase, then I would look for uh, pancreatitis or recurrent acute pancreatitis. 
one last question kind of on the same thread. So in our audience, we have a lot of learners who are in, say, general pediatrics or, or general practitioners who who may not have encountered that term macrolipidemia before. So could you just kind of briefly explain what, what that's all about and, and how that leads to um, uh, an elevated lipase that doesn't represent inflammation in the pancreas? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think that's the lipase that makes a complex with IgG or IgM or macroglobulin. I mean, it's not a disease. You know, pancreas looks normal. It's just like it's detected as elevated. And the, the levels can fluctuate from very high to mildly elevated. It's not a disease. So now that we spoke a little bit about how to uh, diagnose a patient with acute pancreatitis, can we talk a little bit about how to manage these patients in terms of fluid management, pain management, severity assessment? With the uh, emerging uh, new studies, um, these recommendations have evolved over time. Um, and have changed. So um, if you can uh, tell us about your approach uh, for a patient with acute pancreatitis and uh, the recommendations on how to manage that. You're right that the management of acute pancreatitis has evolved significantly. And I think it depends on your clinical judgment and how the patient looks at, you know, when you assess them. And I use the uh, SIRS criteria or systemic inflammatory response syndrome criteria on admission, and I reassess 48 hours later. Uh, and the NASPGAM Pancreas Committee has developed a classification for uh, pediatric acute pancreatitis severity. It was published in 2017. I use that. Uh, and my experience is that if children have mild acute pancreatitis or idiopathic acute pancreatitis, they recover fairly quickly. And I can, you know, use, uh, advance them to oral general diets fairly quickly, probably even within 24 hours, and they would, they will be discharged in a relatively short time. Uh, if the patient is dehydrated, I mean, I rehydrate the patient. And again, you know, depends on how they dehydrate that they are. In general, I give a fluid bolus followed by one and a half time maintenance, probably within the first 24 hours. And then I reassess and then step down to one time maintenance. And, you know, just you can discontinue if the patient is eating. I favor oral pain medications and non-narcotics um, mostly. If the pancreatitis is mild and if they're not tolerating oral medications, IV. Uh, and then you step it up if, you know, the pancreatitis is moderate, severe to severe. Uh, patients with uh, moderately severe or severe acute pancreatitis uh, have to be watched very carefully uh, as they can develop end organ failure. Uh, and I think I find the SIRS criteria uh, helpful in that regard. Uh, those patients may need to be followed very carefully and they may need to be admitted to the pediatric ICU. Um, uh, and I find the gallstone pancreatitis and pancreatitis caused by L. asparaginase to be most challenging. Uh, uh, another one is, you know, children with obesity have more severe acute pancreatitis. But I mean, in general, I think in pediatrics, we're, we, we have mild cases, so we're, we're lucky. Sometimes with fluid management uh, in patients with acute pancreatitis, it gets a little tricky. You don't want to underhydrate them, but you also don't want to fluid overload them. So um, what are your recommendations on that? 
I think it depends on your clinical judgment. I mean, you know, we don't have very solid criteria, not even in, not even in adults. I think, you know, whether you under or overhydrate, you know, what is the right fluid? I think that's, you know, being discussed not only in pediatrics, but in, but in adults. I think what I would just say, you know, you assess patient, you look at the urine output, you know, you look at uh, the hydration status and you just reassess. Um, I, I'm not sure what the practice is in, in Iowa. Certainly locally, um, many patients with acute pancreatitis are admitted under our general pediatric service. They're not actively managed by the GI service, although we get involved often in consultation. And one of the common questions that comes up is they seem to be getting better, but gosh, the lipase is still elevated. Is this a problem? How often should we be trending lipases in the setting of acute pancreatitis? And, and do we do need to document that the lipase return to normal after an episode? Uh, very good questions. I don't think you generally need to follow lipase and or amylase uh, during an, an admission for an acute pancreatitis. I mean, certainly I don't use that as a criteria for a discharge. I mean, it's again, a clinical judgment. It's unlikely that it will change the care that you will initiate based on your clinical judgment and labs such as CBC or electrolytes or CRP. Uh, you know, I must confess I trend it. Uh, if a patient has a severe presentation or I'm unable to uh, use my clinical judgment, such as a patient with, you know, neurologically severely disabled, and I can't really rely on my clinical judgment. Uh, but I certainly don't use it as a criteria for the discharge. I like to see a normal uh, lipase after an episode just to make sure that things return back to normal. Uh, I see the patients in about two weeks or so for a follow-up as a closure. And partly because, you know, I want to make sure that this is not going to be a recurrent acute pancreatitis. I mean, you know, our criteria about acute recurrent pancreatitis, I see a number of them. I just want to make sure that this, this episode is cleared uh, and hopefully it's just one and not recurrent. Kind of related to maybe stratifying the patient that has a very simple one and done course with acute pancreatitis versus somebody that may end up having a more complicated course or, or some lasting effects. When should we be looking at doing imaging to look for complications such as, you know, pseudocyst formation or in somebody who seems a little sicker when they're um, in their first presentation to look for necrosis and things like that? So I want to start by saying that, you know, everybody with the first attack of acute pancreatitis in pediatrics deserves an ultrasound. <laughs> I mean, you want to look for gallstones because if there are gallstones, I mean, you can, you know, you can treat that. It's a treatable cause. Um, I think the imaging study uh, looking for complications is a in a child not improving, let's say, 72 hours after the first presentation. I mean, what does it mean if not clinically improving? Uh, I mean, the child is still in pain. Um, epigastrum is still tender. You can't advance feeds. Uh, I mean, at this point, I would do a contrast-enhanced CT looking for complications. So I also have to, to say that you know, the children already come with a CT done in the emergency room. And I just say, please stop doing CTs in the emergency room because we're exposing the kids to unnecessary radiation. So that's another plug. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, you know, we, we had, um, you know, data in the Inspired database. I think we have shown that the kids, you know, with chronic pancreatitis end up having multiple, multiple imaging and ERCP. So, you know, if this is a particular child who's going to have recurrent acute or chronic pancreatitis, you know, you want to decrease the burden <laughs> and no reason <laughs> to give extra radiation. So sometimes a patient comes in with an acute pancreatitis episode, goes home and comes back with another acute pancreatitis episode. And what comes to mind, um, is this the same episode? Is it a new episode of acute pancreatitis, meaning acute recurrent pancreatitis? Um, does the patient have chronic pancreatitis? Can you tell us a little bit um, about what the criteria for acute recurrent pancreatitis is and the difference between acute recurrent pancreatitis and chronic pancreatitis? Very good question. So acute recurrent pancreatitis definition is you need at least two distinct attacks of acute pancreatitis with complete resolution of pain between episodes. So uh, the criteria is if the amylase and lipase were not checked, you need at least one month between the episodes. But if the amylase and lipase are checked, we look for complete normalization of amylase and lipase between the episode and the resolution of the pain. So that's another reason why I like to see a normal amylase and lipase plus resolution of pain. I mean, I sometimes, you know, get consulted on patients like five pancreatitis attacks in one and a half months. I mean, that to me just like doesn't feel right. I mean, it's quite possible that it was just one pancreatitis attack that has never gotten better. I mean, why is it important? I think it it helps me treat the patient, approach to the patient. Uh, so that's just one difference between acute and acute recurrent pancreatitis. I mean, like, you know, just putting the right name on the patient. Um, so the difference between acute recurrent and chronic pancreatitis, I think uh, chronic pancreatitis is the irreversible changes in the pancreas. Uh, but how do, you, how do you find that out? I mean, right now we find that with the imaging. Uh, the other thing is, of course, the biopsy, but we don't biopsy the pancreas all that much. So you rely on the imaging, I mean, plus abdominal pain or exocrine pancreatic insufficiency or diabetes, but those are late findings. So you really rely on the imaging. But by the time we find things on the imaging, it could be that things will be evolving. So until we find more reliable diagnostic early biomarkers, we rely on imaging. So it is uh, irreversible. Irreversible structural changes in the pancreas is what defines chronic pancreatitis. So it's probably a disease continuum between acute recurrent and chronic pancreatitis. Some take longer to get there. Some may never get there. Uh, it probably uh, depends on the risk factors. I mean, some risk factors will get the kids from acute recurrent to chronic pancreatitis faster, such as, you know, we found that PRSS1 mutations, it's a rapid transition from uh, acute recurrent to chronic pancreatitis in kids uh, versus, you know, we found that the toxic metabolic risk factors is, is not. I mean, probably takes years and perhaps never get there. I don't know. Or some gene mutations may, may, may be taking years or decades. Uh, so it's, it's, a, um, it's the subject of research. I mean, right now, I think uh, how we detect early changes in, in the pancreas is something that, uh, that needs to be investigated. 
What findings on imaging studies would you see that would help you diagnose uh, a patient with uh, chronic pancreatitis? So anything related uh, to scar, mm-hmm. uh, permanent scar, I mean, ductal dilatation that make us think that there has been irreversible changes have occurred. When we talk about that patient with acute recurrent pancreatitis that's met the criteria for having more than one episode with complete resolution of pain and, uh, and enzymes between, um, how in general do you approach that patient? How do you manage the patient who, who is presenting with, uh, with acute recurrent pancreatitis? I look for the risk factors and some are treatable. Uh, such as celiac disease or obstructive factor. I mean, when I find something treatable, I, you know, it's very rewarding. <laughs> I rule out cystic fibrosis. There have been a few patients I diagnosed with cystic fibrosis later in life with pancreatitis with only little or no lung disease. That's an important diagnosis that needs to be made. It's life-changing uh, for anyone. Uh, so, you know, once the workup is completed, I sit down and discuss with the child and the family what the diagnosis is, you know, where do we go from here, how to manage the acute attacks, what should we expect, potential complications, progression to CP, how to follow. I mean, it's a lot of counseling. When, when you're doing that workup, uh, is genetic testing always part of that initial workup, or do you have sort of a stratified approach to your workup in a patient with acute recurrent pancreatitis? It is always the part of the workup. I mean, uh, most of the time I see patients as, uh, you know, first or second uh, opinion. And uh, yes, it's part of the workup. And there are gene testings. There are four gene panels, six gene panels. 10 gene panels, 13 gene panels. But, you know, the most essential ones that I think everybody's familiar is, you know, PRSS1, CFTR, uh, CTRC, and SPINK1 genes. Uh, So I think uh, those are the ones that are most uh, familiar with. Uh, And there are more emergent genes that, you know, I I also uh, utilize. So, um, Dr. Uch, you are the chair and the co-founder of Inspire a multi-center data registry for pediatric patients with pancreatic diseases. Can you tell us about Inspire and what motivated you to start this uh, registry? It really stemmed from my random discussion from uh, Dr. Mark Lowe, who is now at WashU, at a meeting called Pancreas Fest, uh, and that we needed to do something for uh, children with pancreatitis, and it just took off from there. Um, I reached out to others who might potentially be interested uh, in participating, and they were. Uh, that led to group discussions uh, about how to organize our clinical study, initially completely unfunded, uh, and then then it was funded. <laughs> it just it just started like that. Can you comment a little bit about uh, you know whether the goals of Inspire have evolved over time, or what are the goals? of uh, Inspire um, kind of broadly? Well, the goals of Inspire is really creating a cohort of patients with acute recurrent and chronic pancreatitis that are well phenotyped that we could understand the natural history because it is such an uncommon disease that is progressed very slowly. 
and also create a multi-center study group that we could uh, get together and do studies and try to understand the natural history of this disease and overall create better diagnostics and better therapeutics for this very rare disease. Beyond Inspire, looking back at your career, what do you think has been the most valuable advice that someone gave you that helped with your career? And um, maybe it's related, maybe it's not. What, what advice do you have for learners? Looking back at my career, I think once my mentor said, if you throw a rock from the window and it comes right back at you, you should pay attention. <laughs> so he was very detail-oriented. I, I think I'm curious and detail-oriented. I'm always excited about learning new things and discoveries so that I find that exciting. It keeps me going. Um, the advice I have for people who are listening, uh, I would just say remain open and flexible to opportunities that come your way. And that may be your next big project or career building opportunity. Absolutely. You never know when that big project comes up. So we have to keep an eye for that. Um, great advice, Dr. Uj. Any final words for our listeners? Um, thank you for having me on Bowel Sounds podcast. It's been great fun. Um, I hope everybody enjoys it. I did. Thank you. I'm sure. Thank you, Dr. Uj. Thank you. Wow, Jason, that was a great episode. Yeah, I think we covered a lot of ground. I, I really liked the conversation about starting Inspire being, um, you know, as she acknowledged, it's a lot of work, but Absolutely. also clearly lines out the potential rewards, which is clear from what the Inspire Group has done so far. All right. Well, uh, for everyone in our audience, if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspagan Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspagan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Aspagam Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye for now. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs>